You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Appreciate you all singing. The, the most beautiful instrument in the room is the voice of the congregation singing. You agree? Love that. If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Really, I I wanted to, to focus our attention on the fact that Jesus was mocked today. There's so much in here when you start reading this, but we're actually going to pick this story up in verse 32. It is a lengthy text, but I would ask you to stand with me as we read Scripture together. This is after... Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified. They mock him, strip him. And then we read, as they went out, they found a man, Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. When he tasted it, He would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, the other on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Elama Sabachani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling out for Elijah. And one of them at once ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see if he is Elijah, if Elijah will come save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn 
two from top to bottom and the earth shook and rocks were split. The tombs were opened that many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised coming out of the tombs after the resurrection. They went to the holy city and appeared to many. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, what had taken place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among who were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for giving your son to us that we might have life in his name, not our own. That it is through him that we could have life. Lord, I pray that as we look at the events concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus this morning, I pray that you would guide us. Pray that your spirit would work in our hearts. Guide us to truth. Open our eyes. Give us hearts to understand it, that we might grasp it, that it might be implanted deep, that we might see the truth and the beauty of the gospel afresh, or maybe for the first time. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The story of Jesus' death and resurrection needs a little context. You just start out, and the first place you read in the Bible without hearing anything else, the story we just read It's totally out of context. I was thinking about this as we were recording our our podcast, the the Renewal Cast, the other day. And and actually, we're adding a a third person to that podcast. I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, John Goodell from the church in Grant, Nebraska is going to join us. So in a few weeks, when that episode's released, um, he'll be on there. But we were recording that the other day, and we were talking about the fall. Of course, when we talk about the fall, we're talking about that event in the Garden of Eden, which plunged the whole of the human race into a state of sin, so that we all have a sin nature or a propensity to transgress the righteous standard of God, that propensity can be traced back then to one single event in human history. And that is the fall. That our first parents willingly, freely violated the command of God in the Garden of Eden, the command, the agreement, the covenant, 
whereby God said, you may eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden except one. If you eat from that one tree, you will surely die. But if you obey, there will be life and blessing. So that was the agreement. The covenant, if they obeyed, life and blessing would be one for them and all their posterity. But if they obeyed or disobeyed, they would die. Physically, but spiritually. And that death then would be passed down as a curse to all of their posterity. Adam and Eve, before the fall, were righteous. They were accepted by God. They were what we say spiritually alive. God looked at them and there was nothing hindering their relationship with Him. Now we understand that God is the Creator. He has the right over His creatures. He sets the standard or terms of our relationship with Him. He decides, he defines what is good, which is his own perfect and good standard. So Adam and Eve are enjoying a wonderful, unhindered relationship of communion with God himself. When Adam and Eve listened to the serpent, when he questioned the motive of God, in prohibiting eating from that tree, appealing to their pride. And in that moment, when Adam and Eve took that forbidden fruit, they fell. They fell. Often we see on TV shows and movies depictions of the fall or a fall. Often we see angels And they literally fall from heaven down to earth. And they become like one of us. We get that to some degree, I think. Because heaven is supposed to be up there somewhere. And they fall down to earth and become like one of us. But that isn't what it means to fall. Adam and Eve were already on the ground. So the question is, is what sense did they fall then? They fell from a state of righteousness before God, a state of communion with God, a perfect, harmonious relationship with God. They fell from that to a state of sin and death. Before they were righteous, now because of their action in violating the command of God, They are unrighteous in his sight. And they deserve the consequences of that action. We must understand that God is perfect. He is perfectly good, perfectly just, and therefore he is a perfect good judge. We understand this. We are people that long for justice, don't we? Remember the guy in Colorado not long ago that killed his wife and children, tried to cover it up. I mean, can you, can you imagine 
being the family of those victims. I mean, we're onlookers of that situation from somewhat of a distance. And we long for justice. That justice be served. And the fact is, a good judge is going to be just in that situation. That judge is not going to look at the evidence and say, yes, that person did it. There's no doubt that they did it. Everything points to the fact that they are guilty of that crime. They're not going to look at that person and say, you murdered your wife. You murdered your children. But I also believe that you're sorry and that you won't do it again. So you're free to go. That would be absurd. Justice would be perverted. And God on a cosmic scale has created laws in accordance with his own perfections and violations of those laws demand divine justice. But God is also merciful. And we see this in the garden as well. Hints, points. In fact, in the garden, God pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve. And about as soon as he does that, he kills an animal and clothes them. An act of mercy. Covering up their nakedness. An action that clearly points forward to Jesus Christ and his death for us. The subject of our text today. You can't understand the death of Christ, the cross, the resurrection, and what that means without understanding the fall and the state that we are in. That's my point in bringing this up. To talk about the fall on the onset. When we speak of of the fall or original sin, we are speaking of a hopeless situation. The fact is, We are fallen people. There's no way around it. We, too, are fallen. We do not live naturally in a state of communion with God. Our relationship with God is not harmonious. Our sin separates us from God. And just as Adam and Eve were under the sentence of death for their actions, so are we. And we prove this constantly by keeping in nature with our sinful propensity. We are inclined to evil. We have a sinful nature. And we prove our fallen state over and over by our actions. So the fall is not only the reality of the garden, but it is the reality for you and I as well and We live here and now violating the commands of an all-holy and just God over and over. And for our actions, we deserve the due penalty. We are, whether we like it or not, subjects in God's kingdom who are constantly committing treasonous acts against the king. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, 
that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good, not one. Fact is, goodness and righteousness are defined by God Himself, and we are people who fall very short of that standard. We're fallen. In so many ways we are fallen, and no amount of of good deeds can ever undo what has already been done. You cannot unring the bell. We all stand condemned for our actions before God. That context is a context that we must grasp before we ever come to the cross. Or the cross will not have any meaning. The message of resurrection and life that he's still rolling stones, that he's do, still doing this miraculous thing in the hearts of people is not going to carry any weight unless we recognize the fact that we are starting out in a place of deadness. The story of Christ's death and resurrection needs to start with this context. After all, There's a lot in the Bible before Jesus ever comes on the scene, and it would be foolish to think that we can understand this event in Matthew chapter 27 without understanding why he came in the first place to save sinners who are in a hopeless situation. So this is why the death and resurrection of Christ are necessary. The death and resurrection of Christ Jesus were necessary because of our fallen and hopeless state. That we cannot, in our own power, in our own might, no matter what we do, remedy our own situation. And we need somebody that will step in and bear the weight of God's justice on our account so that we might receive mercy. Somebody, so to speak, that would be slaughtered so that we could be clothed. That's what Genesis points to. This is why I said that the Garden of Eden pointed to Jesus. You see, for Adam and Eve to, to have received mercy, there were animals that needed to die in order for them to be clothed. The fact is, the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a type, a shadow of one that would come, Jesus, who would put an end to the curse of sin and death once and for all by taking on the sin of every person that would place their faith and trust in Him and bear the weight of God's wrath for that sin. The author of Hebrews, in saying that Jesus is greater and better than everything, in chapter 9 declares that there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. Sin cannot be dealt with without the shedding of blood. And God is just. Sin must be dealt with. And we are saying that in the death of Jesus Christ, it served the purpose of dealing with sin. That God's justice was delivered. That Jesus' death dealt with sin by Him becoming sin for us. I know what you're thinking, probably. Maybe. 
We're talking a lot about death, but isn't Easter about resurrection? Don't we celebrate life at Easter? The answer is yes. The whole fact that we worship on Sunday, and get this, church, the whole reason we gather as a community, to worship on Sunday morning is because of resurrection. Every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why the early church started worshiping on Sunday. They gather on that morning because Christ rose from the dead. But even more than that, we must speak of Jesus' death and why he died in order to understand the significance of the resurrection. Because, get this, this is, this is, this is a tough one to grasp. I get it, but without death, there's no resurrection. So we're going to get there, but let's just start with the account of Jesus' death and specifically how he was treated. You read this account. I mean, you would not expect somebody that is being crucified like a common criminal to be treated with dignity and respect. But I I think that we should take note of how specifically he was mocked a little bit here. Just start looking at at like verse 34 and just kind of follow along. After he had gotten to the place in which he would be crucified. So this is after he was flogged. Beaten. I mean, he is probably at this point, he would have died anyways. It would have just taken longer. It would have been from an infection and whatever. So this is after he is flogged. He's forced to, to carry the cross. Of course, he could not, and a guy by the name of Simon was asked to help him. So Jesus is in astronomical agony at this point, even before he is crucified. So they offer him wine mixed with gall. Most people think this was myrrh. It was used to numb the pain. Crucifixion was extremely painful. But Jesus, we're told, would not drink it. The next verse just simply says, and when he was crucified... Doesn't mean that he was killed right at that moment, of course. It means that he was in the process of being killed. That's what crucifixion was. Romans devised crucifixion to be an extremely painful process of dying. It was meant to take time. It was meant to be in a deterrent. It was meant to leave a person in agony there for several hours. It was meant to have people interact with that person while they were still living on the cross in that agony as a deterrent for others so that they wouldn't do the same thing. So Jesus is in the process of being killed. And there's several things that happen as Jesus is on the cross and in the process of dying. The first thing that we read is that the soldiers divide his garments up and they cast lots for them. 
If Jesus' clothes were in the possession of the soldiers, this means that he was naked, that he was exposed, and this was part of the ridicule. He was exposed for everyone to see. They attached a charge against him on the cross so that people would see it. The charge was this, just simply, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Just think about that for a moment. Here's this suffering naked man being killed along with common criminals, robbers in this case. And the sign reads, this is the one who is supposed to be the King of the Jews. I mean, we need to understand a little bit about what the Jews believed about the Messiah at this point. The Jews believed that the Scriptures promised one that would come and deliver them from oppression. And since at this point in history they were being oppressed by Rome, they believed that they were waiting for a deliverer, a Messiah, king, that would come and deliver them from the Roman occupation. They hated the Romans. Romans weren't good people. They were harsh. They believed that this king would start an uprising and that he would deliver them by military might and force from the control of the Roman power. Which, by the way, the Romans were so powerful, this was only something that they believed could be accomplished by the hand of God on a certain individual. Somebody like David, reincarnated. Now we know that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. In fact, he was put to death for blasphemy, making himself equal with God. Of course, the religious leaders didn't like this. It threatened their position and their power that they held because they had certain sway with the Roman authorities. But by the end of Jesus' life, it was clear that he claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, the Christ. The word Christ, by the way, is just the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. So Jesus Christ Somebody asked Jesus, are you the Christ? And he says, you said so. Yes, I'm the Messiah, he's saying. But the oppression that Jesus was there to save them from was not Rome. It was even something more sinister. The power of sin, the power of Satan, the spiritual captivity. It wasn't there to deal with physical Roman occupation. So the Romans here are using the death of Jesus to attack the Jewish expectation of the Messiah. This guy is the one that you're saying is the Messiah that is going to deliberate deliberate you from the control of, of us? Think again. He's on our cross. Of course... Jewish leaders really didn't mind this sign either because they wanted everybody to know this is not the Messiah that we're waiting for. This is a weak man. And he needs to be dealt with. No room for him. 
Isn't it interesting that people are mocking Jesus for being the king of the Jews? Saying, look at this naked, suffering man. How could he be a king? That was supposed to be clear. But it was in that suffering that Jesus Christ was actually saving them. They are ridiculing Him. Mocking Him. Mocking the Jewish Messiah. All the Scriptures are pointing up to this moment. And Jesus is saving them. It wouldn't be long, just days, and Jesus is raised from the dead, exalted as the true King that He is. Look at this King. You're saying. Such irony, isn't it? Jesus had a sign that basically said, how could this man save anyone? But they all missed it. He was saving them. And He was King. And one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord of all. Above the world, on earth, under the earth, everyone will bow a knee before Him. And He is the one that they were mocking on the cross. In verse 38, we read of two robbers crucified with Him. And of course, most of us know that story. There's a conversation that happens on the cross. This is the account in Luke chapter 23. We learn that one of the criminals was railing at him saying, Are you not the Christ? For if you are, save yourself and us. The criminal sees that they are in a position of hopelessness. Little does he know how hopeless a situation they are really in. But that's what Roman execution was. It was hopelessness. There was no hope for them. They are on a cross. They are dying. It is torture. It is agonist for hours and hours and hours. And there is only one outcome, and that is death. And if by some strange chance that one could get themselves off the cross, there were soldiers there keeping watch over them so that they would get put right back on it. The cross always had the same outcome. Always. Death. And everyone knew it. And people knew of Jesus. They heard about his message. Supposedly he was the the promised one who would deliver the people. And if he's on the cross, he is an utter failure. He was supposed to be the promised one that would deliver the people. And if he had any power, I mean, he could do some miraculous things. But there's one thing this thief believed that he could not do. And that is, they could not be saved from the hand of Roman execution. And this is why he's railing against Jesus, saying that if you are really here to save people from oppression, you would save yourself from this cross. You would save us from this cross. You would deliver us from this treatment of harsh reality. The other thief, on the other side of Jesus, rebukes the first one, recognizing that there was something more to fear than Roman execution, and that there was a far greater punishment than the cross. That's seen in his question. He says, do you not fear God? 
He goes on to say that they deserve what they are getting, but Jesus didn't deserve any of it. He had done nothing wrong. Do you see what he's saying? The one who sins against God is the one that should fear God. The purpose of Roman execution is Roman crucifixion is that so people would see it and fear Rome. It would be a deterrent. This thief recognized that his actions not only condemned him in the eyes of Rome, but would ultimately condemn him before God, and it is God that he should fear. This is why then he turns to Jesus and says, so will you remember me? Because if I'm going to have any hope in the life hereafter, it is going to be because of you. And he places his trust and faith in Jesus Christ to save him from his sins that condemned him before God. And this is something we cannot miss in the text. That it is our sins that are what is what is condemning us before God. And the question of the thief here is very relevant to us, isn't it? Do you not fear God? Do you not believe that your sins will condemn you before God if left unchecked? Jesus said it this way. Don't fear the one that can kill the body, but the one who can destroy the soul and the body in hell. So after this, we learn that those onlookers wag their heads at him. They, they scorn him. They heap blasphemies on him, saying things like, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourselves. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. <laughs> this is the interesting thing, is that those who are there, they, they know what Jesus said. They know his teaching. They've, they've followed him. Certainly, they know what he said about the temple. That must have been well known. And it's clear that they didn't understand what he was saying. We look back at this, we know that Jesus was speaking of himself. He was making reference to the resurrection. That he is the temple that would be destroyed. He would die. And in fact, what is in the midst of happening is the onlookers are keeping these blasphemies on him. As he is dying, it's taking what Jesus had already prophesied that he would die and raise in three days. This prophetic statement of Jesus. And we recognize that as they are heaping blasphemies on him, he is fulfilling his prophetic statement. They didn't, they didn't grasp it. Not only the onlookers were the ones that were mocking Jesus, but the religious leaders were as well. These are the ones that should have known better. They were the experts in the Old Testament law. Really, if anyone should have understood the significance of the events that were taking place right in front of them, these should have. They were very familiar with the Old Testament. Many of them had it memorized. 
They knew passages such as Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, that the details of the events of the crucifixion were actually in the Old Testament. They should have been catching the significance of the events that were happening right before them, but instead they were mocking Jesus as well. But isn't this how exactly how it is with many? That we're so busy with what's going on in our lives. We're so busy thinking about the moment to think of Jesus and why he came to die on the cross. Yes, we know that Jesus died, but we do not begin to contemplate the fact that he came to die for us. To free us from the stain of sin by the shedding of his blood. Notice what the religious leaders say in verse 42. He saved others. How did he do that? Miracles? He saved others. He healed others. He did some great things. People followed him. He led people to believe that they could have a life that's better. That they could see God if they followed Him. He saved others, but He cannot save Himself. He's the King of Israel. Let Him come down from the cross. A refrain that is repeated over and over. But then they say, if He gets off that cross, we will believe Him. He trusts God. Let God deliver him. He said, I am the Son of God. Doesn't this highlight the fact that they missed the significance of what was taking place right before their eyes? That Jesus was the, in the midst of, of saving people? Every person that would place their faith and trust in him. This is, was the event that the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures that they claimed to be experts in pointed to. It was all pointing to this event in, in human history in which the Lamb of God would come and take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist saw it, didn't he? Jesus coming to his baptism and John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that takes away the sins of the world. And what he understood, the religious leaders, and almost everybody watching this event could not grasp. If he would only come down from the cross, then they would believe in him. Why would they? We already pointed out that Moses and the prophets all pointed to Jesus, and yet they would not believe. Jesus did many miracles. They didn't believe. Remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16? Rich man dies. Lazarus dies. They both die. The rich man goes to hell. Lazarus in heaven. The rich man asks if Lazarus can come give him some relief from his torment, put a little water on his tongue. Of course, the answer is no, because the chasm is, is too great between them. And then the rich man wants him to go to his, his brothers who are still living to, to tell them so they don't make the same mistake and get to the same place. The answer the rich man gets is they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, Moses and the prophets all point to Jesus Christ which is who they need to trust in to avoid the same fate as their departed brother. The rich man says, no, they're not going to believe Moses and the prophets. They need somebody who's going to come from the dead to tell them, and they will believe. And the answer that is given in verse 31 is if they do not believe from Moses and the prophets, neither they will be convinced if somebody even rise from the dead. 
Certainly he's talking about Lazarus. If someone like that would rise from the dead and go tell them, they still would not repent. But Jesus is there. He's also speaking of himself. If Jesus rises from the dead, there's many that still won't even believe. Many people look at the resurrection. They look at ways to explain it away. The religious leaders of the day were faced with the resurrection and they too tried to explain it away. And then they go and they persecute the followers of Jesus Christ. They wanted to do away with Jesus while he was alive. And then they wanted to kill him. And after they killed him and there was a resurrection, they wanted to do away with all of that as well. And then finally they wanted to do away with the followers of Jesus. These things were right in front of them. The prophecy was literally being fulfilled. And the ones that should have recognized all of these things blew it off and they mocked Jesus in the end. The ones that should have recognized the significance didn't. They were the leaders. And the people that followed them deserved the truth. They didn't get it. In verse 45, we have the account of Jesus' death Then he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Statement right from Psalm 22, verse 1. They should have got it. They didn't. The temple curtain splits. In two, the tombs are opened. Many people who were dead, raised from the dead, they make their way to Jerusalem. But the most remarkable thing in all of this is what we read happens next. There are a number of people that see all of this take place. The darkness, the earth shaking. The scripture tells us that they are filled with awe and they believe. The Roman centurion keeping watch over Jesus being one of these. Why him? Isn't it interesting? The Roman centurion sees all of this, doesn't have any context. The religious leaders should have got it all. They should have grasped it. They didn't get it. He's filled with awe. And he believes. All of this raises two important questions. First is, why did Jesus have to die? We talked about this at the onset, but we should note again that at least the, the religious leaders should have recognized that there be that, that there needed to be forgiveness of sins, there needed to be shedding of blood. And one of the things that the entire passage before us reveals is that we as people naturally do not take sin seriously. For most of the, for most of the Jewish people during the time of Jesus, they thought that their biggest problem was the, the oppression of Rome. They thought that if they could be liberated from Rome, they would be saved. And that life would be good. They thought that that was their first and foremost problem. It was the problem that was plaguing them, and they could not see past it. And if Jesus wasn't there to liberate them from Rome, then he might just be killed and mocked. The fact is, it was their sin that would damn them. This is how it is with us. I would suggest that we don't take our sin seriously. 
that we don't recognize that it is our sin that will ultimately send us to hell. And that that is the greatest threat in our lives right now is our sin. It is so sinister. It's so much greater than anything that's going on in your world or in my world, in the world at large. It's so much greater than what's going on at at work. And it's what needs to be remedied. And that's what happened at the cross. We are dead in our sins and need to be liberated from that. Jesus died to free people like you and I from the curse of sin and death. Second question. We haven't had time to get to this so much, but we've talked, but we've talked about it. Certainly, we realized that the death of Jesus wasn't the end of the story. On Friday, Jesus died. On Sunday, he was raised from the dead. So the question is, is why then did Jesus raise? A number of ways to answer the question. A simple way is that Jesus was raised in victory over death. Jesus died bearing the weight of our sin. He took our place of all those who would place their faith and trust in him. He paid that price. But death wouldn't have the last word. Death would not reign. It would not be victorious. It wouldn't reign victorious over Jesus, and it will not reign victorious over us. We too will be resurrected. For just as Jesus was was raised, so will we. And I would suggest that we should also answer that question by saying that Jesus rose again for our salvation. Let me ask you this. Can one be saved and not believe in the resurrection? I don't think so. And I would say that because of Romans 4.25 being one place. Who, that's Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Here's how I understand this. I'll be brief. And I think it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. There are two parts of the the verse here. Jesus being delivered up for our sins. We've made this point. He was It was for our sins that Christ Jesus died. He took our place and died the death that we deserve to die. We were sinners. He was perfect. He took the place for us, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. The second part of the verse says that he was raised for our justification. The resurrection then is God's evidence to us that that transaction was accepted by God. It is one thing to hope that when Jesus died, he accomplished what he set out to accomplish. The resurrection was God's proof that there was victory over death, that Christ accomplished salvation for every person that would place their faith and trust in him. The word justification is important. It is to to be made right. And this is what Jesus Christ did on the cross and what the resurrection proves. That it was on the cross that we were made right with God. And death will lose its sting because in Christ there is only life. Not by our own merit. We're in a hopeless state. And it is in the resurrection that our standing before God has changed. 
No longer are we characterized by the curse of sin and death. But we are in Christ, characterized by His life, His resurrection. My friends, I would suggest that in a room this size, there are those here who are still characterized by sin and death. There are those here that are in the midst of not not taking our sin as seriously as we should. Yes, someday we'll, we'll deal with the Jesus thing. We'll take care of our sin. But right now there's too many things to deal with. There's things to deal with at work. There's ways to get ahead. There's schoolwork. There's whatever it is. And we just don't take sin in our lives seriously. All of the scriptures point to the biggest problem that we have is our sin problem. And that Jesus Christ came to deal with that issue. That if we would place our faith and trust in Him, that He would deal with that once and for all. My friends, there is no better time to take sin seriously in your life than right now. To turn to Jesus and admit that He is the only hope that they have. Like the robber on the, on the cross. We need to be fearing God. Because God is just. And then we need to turn to Christ and say, in you, I have only, I, my only hope is in you. Turn to Him in faith and repentance and cling to Him. And let Him deal with the sin curse on your behalf. Because left in our sin, the only thing for us to faith is the wrath of God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.